are listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, a proposed land development code hit some roadblocks in Teton County, Idaho. It's really hard to deal with an emotional issue in something that is kind of a technical document. Plus, meet the artist behind many of the world's most famous ski resorts, Trail Maps. You know, I I was uh, just trying to get any illustration job I could get. But first, wildlife biologists are proposing winter closures of some terrain in and around Grand Teton National Park. The hope is that the move would help protect the locally endangered and isolated bighorn sheep herd in the range. But as K2L's Will Walkie reports, the recommendations are drawing backlash from some backcountry skiers, and stakeholders from across the region are searching for ways to compromise. About 100 bighorn sheep call the Tetons home. They often live on windswept ridges between 8 and 12,000 feet up. Backcountry ski guide Z. Billamoria has been recreating in the Tetons for more than two decades, and he says he's only encountered the species a few times. That's like a sacred animal. And if you see it, you know, for one, you're in awe of it because it is so rare. And for two, you recognize because it's so hard for us to survive up there and to avoid avalanches, to not fall off the side of the mountain. So I think that there is this like amazing admiration that we all have for these creatures. Bighorn sheep historically inhabited the entirety of Jackson Hole and once numbered in the thousands. But loss of habitat due to human development and invasive species has rapidly diminished the herd's numbers over the past few decades. Now, the sheep are in danger of local extinction, according to many biologists who live in Teton County, including Ali Cordemanch of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. You know, the herd is small, it's in trouble, but it's not doomed at this point, and we can change things, um, but we have to act quickly. Quartermanch is helping lead the charge among local biologists to try and double the bighorn herd population to 200. Some tactics that have been used to try and reach that goal have included killing off invasive mountain goats and educating the public about the plight of the sheep. But the most controversial measure is easily proving to be the newly proposed winter closures that will impact backcountry recreation. It's the magic hour. Welcome to the Teton Range Bighorn Sheep Collaborative Process. On October 20th, more than 250 people gathered over Zoom to discuss potential closures in and around Grand Teton National Park. Several wildlife and public lands experts weighed in on how we've gotten to this point. Uh, Very little of our, our sheep winter habitat is currently protected from human disturbance. Our proposals would increase this by tenfold. Given our rapidly growing human communities, we need to find the restraint needed to give the sheep some space. Multiple peer-reviewed studies over the past few years have found that backcountry skiing negatively impacts sheep herds. That's because the animals tend to avoid otherwise prime habitat at all costs, even if only a few humans are there. So, a working group of local biologists is recommending closures in several iconic ski mountaineering destinations, including parts of Cody Peak, the South Teton, and Avalanche Canyon. Here's Cordemanche at the Zoom meeting explaining the reasoning behind that proposal. If all of the recommended closures in the document were put into place, a total of 47% of the mapped bighorn sheep habitat would be protected. And then, again, if all of the recommended closures were put into place, 
5% of the areas that were identified as highly valued by the ski community during the collaborative process would be closed to human entry from December through April. Several public workshops were held last winter to see which closures might be acceptable for skiers and which ones were deal breakers. But during the most recent public meeting, it was clear that many folks are still unhappy with the closures. Many of the messages I've received reflect disbelief by individuals from both communities about the unwillingness of uh, the other side to compromise. I just don't feel the data you have justifies something this important as closing wilderness. Um, That's a tough one to swallow. Bill Amoria, the backcountry guide we met at the top, also thinks the current proposals go too far. When we come to a place where humans become banned in perpetuity from being able to explore and travel in these remote corners of the range, then we really lose something as a community that is a greater price than the benefit. Bill Amoria also feels the backcountry community is bearing too much of the burden to save the sheep. For example, he brings up the point that much of the historic sheep habitat falls within the Jackson Hole and Grand Targhee ski resorts, but none of the proposed winter closures are located there. The reason that we've got here is in reality because Jackson has fallen off the cliff, in my opinion, as far as its ability to balance visitors and growth with a true wildlife and, and wilderness ethic. Jed Porter is another longtime backcountry guide, but he's approaching the issue from a different viewpoint. He wants to see the skiing community take the matter into their own hands and voluntarily avoid areas identified as high-value bighorn habitat. There's only a very tiny subset of the entire backcountry ski community can get to these proposed closure sites. So why bog down the bureaucratic system with with closures when when a handful of social media influencers could spread the word and we'd, we'd just avoid the spots and let the sheep be for a bit and see what happens. Porter is also frustrated by the widespread outcry he's seen from his friends and fellow guides, whom he would like to see give more respect to the local biologists. I guess I'd like to see some acceptance of the science, first of all. The science is inconclusive, but that's sort of the essence of crisis-based science. Science around a, a, an environmental crisis is going to be uncertain. Wildlife managers say they'll continue to work with the backcountry community over the coming months to hone in on exact closures. But at the same time, many conservationists are hoping for swift action before the bighorn habitat diminishes any further. Will Walkie, KHOL News. Two nights of political drama unfolded in Teton Valley, Idaho, during the last week of October. A public meeting planned for Monday was set to discuss a revised version of the county's proposed land development code. But there were so many public comments that the meeting had to adjourn and reconvene on Wednesday. KHOL contributor Natalie Shakar spoke to the chairman of the county's Planning and Zoning Commission on the day in between the meetings to learn more. Jack Haddix is chairman of the Planning and Zoning Commission for Teton County, Idaho. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today on KHOL. Can you tell us a little bit about the revised version of the County Land Development Code that was discussed Monday night? Well, the comp- 
comprehensive plan was approved in 2012 uh, for Teton County, Idaho. And as, as part of the whole process, we needed a new land development code. So it's kind of been in process since 2012. But this current version started approximately two years ago. We had made an attempt to do a land development code, and it pretty much fell apart when we realized that the Planning and Zoning Commission are not professional planners. So there was a contractor hired that handled uh, you know, planning-type documents. They developed this current code we're going through. In May, the Planning and Zoning Commission received a draft copy we had a public meeting to present the code to the folks and ask them for comments. Then during the summer, we considered all of those comments that we got and reworked what was in the code. So the meeting Monday night was presented to the public again saying, we've made some changes. What do you think about it? Can you tell us a little bit about the revised version? Yeah, where we could, we made adjustments. Uh, the May document had some, in some of the zones, it had certain acreage requirements or lot sizes for subdivisions. We looked at those and said, does this make sense in this area? You know, what, what's gone on in the past? What do we see coming up in the future? And so we adjusted some of those acres. We also looked at what would be permitted in those different zones. Um, for example, fencing. You can't have a blanket fence, you know, for every every different zone because sometimes you're up against the, the foothills, sometimes you're out in the middle of the valley. So we looked at that and said, wait a minute, we need to change fencing requirements. Um, it was just little things like that. We just went through, and a lot of these were based on public comment. This has really just generally been a divisive topic for the community. I know at the hearing on Monday night, the room was almost standing room only, and you heard about three hours of comments, and a lot of them were negative. Some said the document represented discriminatory and non-inclusionary behavior. Others said it threatened the future and would put the pace of development in Teton Valley on par with that of Jackson Hole. How do you foresee addressing some of those concerns? Um, You know, it's kind of tough because, and, and this is a personal disappointment for me, I was expecting to get some substantive comments that said, you know, Yes, we, you made a change here, but I don't think, you know, this this is quite right. It, it's really hard to deal with an emotional issue in something that is kind of a technical document that, you know, spells out what kind of uh, lot size you can have or what kind of screening you need around that lot or the height of a building if you're in a scenic corridor area. You know, it, it's... And somebody just says, I don't like it. Well, how? it's tough to deal with. <laughs> Rather than continue deliberation, you, you made the motion to continue the meeting on Wednesday. Can you um, just talk a bit more in depth about what will happen on that meeting? The Planning and Zoning Commission will sit down and we'll discuss among ourselves, you know, the comments and can we do anything or, you know, can we make changes? Do we need to make changes? What do we think of the overall status of the document? based on the comments we received. And at some point, we will seek a motion, you know, someone on the Planning and Zoning Commission will seek a motion to pass this off or pull it back or or whatever. I say pass it on to the county commissioners or to the county commissioners with this kind of a recommendation or no, we're going to take this back and we're going to 
look at it again. And is there anything else that you'd like Teton County residents to know? You know, last night I heard that we didn't listen to them from several of the people. And I would just like them to know, yes, we did listen. Uh, there are just certain things we can do and certain things we can't, um, considering the, the public as a whole, because we did receive a lot of comments from the side that said, get on with this thing, pass it, you know. So we've, we've got comments on both sides. They weren't the, the ones that were telling us to go ahead and pass it along. There were a few at the meeting last night, but I know there's there's quite a few more out there, and we have comments from them. It, it, it's an ongoing process, and we, we want to get it done, really. But we, we want to be fair to the whole public. Jack, thank you again for joining us today on KHOL. Okay, thank you. A motion was approved at the second meeting for Haddox's commission to hold off on forwarding the revised code to the Teton County Commissioners. The plan now is for a new advisory committee to work on addressing concerns of the community. A group organizing under the name Free Teton Valley celebrated the decision after criticizing the proposed code for what they described as stripping area residents of, quote, constitutional, personal, and civil rights. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, who is the artist whose work you've seen the most? If you're a skier or snowboarder, there's a good chance it might be James Nehus. Over the last 30 plus years, Nehus has painted more than 300 resort trail maps, including Jackson Hole. Matt Hoish of KOTO in Telluride spoke to the artist about his career after his recent announcement that he's retiring from trail map making. Growing up on a farm in Colorado, James Nehus liked to draw. First, it was just things around him. Then he got sick. I think I was three months flat on my back with nephritis. And my mom bought me an oil painting set. And so I would lay in bed and paint landscapes from uh, magazine pictures. And, and, you know, after I got out, overcame that, well, I just um, continued to really be enthralled with uh, the landscapes around me. For Nehus, painting trail maps has always been more about the landscapes than the skiing. He didn't even learn to ski until he was an adult, enlisted in the military, and stationed in Europe. Eventually, he says, he became an intermediate skier. Skiing with a little fear. When it comes to trail maps, Nehus also didn't start until later in life. At 40, he moved to Denver and freelanced as an artist. But he was struggling. You know, I I was uh, just trying to get any illustration job I could get. One artist he admired was trail map-making legend Bill Brown. And he lived in Denver, so I looked him up and hoping that he maybe had an overflow of work and uh, that maybe I could uh, help him out. That cold call set the stage for one of the next great trail map makers in ski resort history. One job led to another, and another, and another. Breckenridge, Vale, Mammoth, Sun Valley, Jackson Hole, Whistler in Canada, Sun Mountain in China, Coronet Peak in New Zealand— 
the list of Nihus maps goes on and on. But at the beginning, the map-making path wasn't a sure thing for him. At first, it was hard. Watercolor was new to me. Uh, I'd been an oil painter for many years and really felt like I didn't have the control over watercolor. You know, I, I just jumped in and learned it and, you know, worked it and worked it. Other parts, though, he says, came naturally, like integrating different perspectives. Making a two-dimensional map requires moving a mountain around in your head and putting it back together. Nihus usually starts with aerial photographs, either taken by himself or sent by the resort. It's a lot about kind of rolling back the perspective. In other words, I, many of mine are traditional with the sky. Well, whenever you're looking at a mountain with a sky, you're looking horizontally across the mountain. But there's lots of slopes on the backside. So it's what I kind of do is get a perspective that's from above looking down so that I can get those back bowls. But I kind of trick you with doing it in such a way that I can get the sky in. When it comes to any reactions he gets from skiers and snowboarders, Nihus says he rarely identifies himself when he's on mountains, but every now and then it comes up. I was on a lift one time with a, with a lady and her, I think it was her daughter, perhaps, grown daughter, and uh, we were talking and, and they asked about some run on the, on the mountain, you know, and I said, well, let's pull out the map and look at it. So I pulled out my map, and so, you know, it just led naturally to it. And they were just beside themselves. They were riding, riding up with a guy that did the map. Those sort of chance encounters might now become even more rare. Now that he's 75, Nihus is retiring from map making. He wants to devote more time to doing landscapes. And his time at resorts, he says, is probably a thing of the past. I don't ski that good anyway, and uh, I'm so much into this, and I feel like I have so little time left that... Uh, but I'm putting everything into this uh, new venture. After three decades on, around, and above the slopes, a well-earned après ski for James Nehus. For KOTO and Telluride, I'm Matt Hoish. at the Center for the Arts features the ceramist Horacio Rodriguez. Rodriguez was born in Texas to a Puerto Rican mother and Mexican father, and his artwork is heavily influenced by indigenous cultures of the Americas and U.S. immigration policy. KHOL contributor Alicia Unger interviewed Rodriguez about his background and the exhibit, which is on display now through the end of the year. Horacio Rodriguez, thank you for joining us today on KHOL. Can you tell us about why immigration has become such a big theme of your work? When I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, I was at my grandmother's house for the summer, and she had a lady that took care of her from Nicaragua. And when I was there that summer, the lady, the daughter, crossed in Arizona, and she was 19, and she died. And I was there, you know, when she found out, and that really affected me. That with 
the students that I taught when I returned from Mexico, I got a job at Chavez High School in Houston teaching mainly immigrants and just hearing their stories and knowing, you know, getting to know them better really wanted to make me do something. Those are a very powerful and emotional stories, Horacio. They are. So this summer I went down to do some research in Arizona. I had a fellowship in Arizona State University, and I volunteered with a group called Battalion Search and Rescue, and they search for migrants at the border. So I spent a couple of days volunteering with them, hiking in the desert in the middle of the summer, and you know, looking for remains and looking for migrants and kind of experiencing the hardship you know, just for a little while of what it's like to be in the environment there in the desert. So all of those things have kind of played a part in the art that I have created um, that talks about the issues of immigration. During that expedition, did you have a close encounter with death? Last week, they found a 15-year-old kid who had been abandoned, and he'd been under a tree for four days. He was about to die, and they got him to the hospital. And, you know, so most of the time it doesn't work that way. Most of the time they just find remains. They don't find people who are alive. But this past weekend they did. So I have committed to going to Arizona twice a year to search with that group. Horacio, your recent pieces of art had messages reflecting the experiences you said you had with the undocumented immigrants. What do you think about the past administration? What do you think about Donald Trump? (laughs) So Donald Trump has given me some of my best material to use. I am glad that he's no longer president, but one of the pieces that's actually in a show right now was called Prototypes for a Border Wall Mitigation Device. And that piece came about when Trump first came into office. He was looking to get different designs and prototypes for the border wall. And I kind of made a protest piece against that. And that was kind of the start of making pieces reacting towards Trump and his presidency and and all of the hate speech that he talked about Mexico. One of the pieces that's going to be in the show in Jackson is called Brown Boys for 45. And it's a series of five sculptures And each one of them, they're wearing the Trump hat, the the Make America Great Again hat. Any frustration that you experienced during this time? One of the things that really, like, kind of frustrated and confused me is my students, some of my students from Chavez High School back in Houston were Trump supporters. And it just was hard for me to understand that these students who were, you know, their parents were immigrants. They were recent arrivals. They'd maybe been in the United States for one or two generations. How quickly they turn around and want to close the door on, on immigrants who are coming now. Going back to your exposition, how do you were able to recreate these pre-Hispanic pieces of art? A lot of the pieces, including the Brown Boys for 45 piece, they all started as pre-Columbian sculptures from the Utah Museum of Fine Arts permanent collection. So they gave me access to seven or eight pre-Columbian pieces. Some of them were from Western Mexico. Some of them were from the Yucatan. Some of them were from Veracruz. I used a 3D scanner and was able to scan these objects. One of them is going to be a child figure that's in a cage. 
that are some of them 1,200, 1,500 years old from pre-Columbian Mexico. And I use those sculptures as a canvas to tell stories about what's happening now. Horacio, what is your main motivation for this exposition? I want to help people. So that's really what's behind my art right now and what's behind my visit is to educate and to help people. Educate and inspire the new generations through this exposition that will begin on October 27 here in the Centers for the Arts of Jackson. Alicia Anger, KHOL. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. Search teams located the body of a 26-year-old Texas man in Grand Teton National Park Sunday. The search for Jared Hembree began last Thursday and involved more than 80 personnel from the park, local law enforcement agencies, and the search and rescue teams from both Teton County, Wyoming, and Idaho. Hembree is the fourth person to go missing in Jackson Hole this year, and the third whose body has been recovered. Public affairs specialist for the park, C.J. Adams, says more cases of missing persons is likely a reflection of increased use of public lands. For the park in general, we've just been uh, super busy this year, and so with increased visitation, um, we've seen some of these cases, and that does take a toll on uh, you know park personnel, but we uh, do our best and make those search efforts as necessary. Luckily, in this case, we were able to locate Jared. Hembree's remains were found near Yule Hill in the eastern part of the park. An investigation is ongoing into the circumstances of his death. Meanwhile, friends and family members of Kian McLaughlin, the 27-year-old Jackson man who went missing in the park in early June, are making a renewed push on social media to locate him using the hashtag FindKian. Anyone with information about McLaughlin or who may have photos or videos from the Delta Lake or Lupine Meadows areas in early June is expected to call the National Park Service Investigative Services Branch at 888-653-0009 or submit a tip online at nps.gov ISB. The Wyoming legislature kicked off a special session Tuesday aimed at combating President Joe Biden's proposed vaccine mandates. Most of the day was spent deliberating the rules and procedures for the lawmaking session. And at one point, the House and Senate both voted on whether or not to adjourn the meetings altogether. However, that was shot down and debates in Cheyenne will continue throughout this week. Republican Representative Chuck Gray of Casper is leading the charge on many of the bills being proposed. It is our job as legislators, the state of Wyoming, to take our 10th Amendment powers, powers in the Ninth Amendment, or powers across the Constitution, and to assert that we are not going to stand for what the chief executive and the executive branch at the federal level is doing right now. One of the laws that will be discussed in the next few days includes penalizing employers for requiring or incentivizing COVID-19 vaccinations among its employees. Democratic Representative Mike Yin of Jackson spoke out against that type of bill, saying it infringes upon the freedoms of individual business owners in Teton County. 
Teton County Director of Parks and Recreation, Steve Ashworth, gave an update Monday to town and county leaders about the status of the rec center expansion and renovation in Jackson. The project was originally budgeted to cost $22 million, a price tag that was approved by voters in 2019. But Ashworth says it's running about $9 million over budget right now. In 2019, I did not predict um, what we'd be dealing with today. You know, we didn't see a pandemic. We didn't see a supply chain challenge like we've had. And the escalation in our community, there is an increased escalation due to labor. Other factors that have increased project costs include expanding the proposed climbing gym based on public feedback and unexpected required excavation on the site. Still, several town councilors and county commissioners say the project's not likely to get any cheaper if they hold off. The boards voted unanimously to support a timeline proposed by Ashworth to continue moving forward in the design and bidding process. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.